Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABEX Technologies, and I'm Todd Buchholz, host of our five-part series, An Emerging Energy Framework for the 22nd Century. Joining me today for the penultimate episode of the series is Susan Sackmar. Susan Sackmar is the former chair of the Jane Goodall Institute and author of the award-winning book, Energy for the 21st Century, Opportunities and Challenges for LNG. As a visiting assistant professor at the University of Houston Law Center, Susan developed and teaches a seminar that focuses on regulatory and environmental issues for global shale gas development and LNG project development. She's a member of the State Bar of California with over 20 years of experience working in a variety of legal, corporate, and nonprofit environments, including as an attorney in the commercial litigation department of a major San Francisco law firm and an accountant for Chevron. Stay tuned. My conversation with Susan, it's coming up next. And now back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. Susan Sackmar, thank you for being with us today on Smarter Markets. Hi, thank you for having me. The term influencer is often associated with reality TV and with The Bachelor and Bachelorette and Hollywood. And yet I've heard you referred to as one of the biggest influencers in LNG and global shale gas development. What drew you into this field? First, let me just point out that those other influencers that you talk about make a lot of money. So I'll just sort of upfront say, perhaps I'm doing it wrong because I, I chose LNG, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. And yet to the extent I'm an inf- influencer, I, I don't actually make any money off anything I, I do on Twitter. But perhaps I think in, in the LNG space, that may be one reason why I am an influencer. I try to be um, a bit impartial and really try to just impart a lot of knowledge and wisdom about LNG. So when I first, one of the reasons I, you asked me, why did I get started in, in LNG? Well, about 10 years ago, in a roundabout way, I had shifted my focus from international trade in the environment to energy in the environment. And I was at an energy event in Singapore, and someone from the gas processing center in Doha, Qatar, stood up and said they were having their first annual symposium on LNG in Doha, Qatar. And what always gets my attention is something new. And so I had never been. So I said, well, I'd sure like to go to Doha, Qatar and have an excuse to go. But I had to write a paper on LNG. Well, I knew nothing about LNG. So I said, well, this is a good opportunity to learn something new. And of course, uh, the great thing about that is I sort of caught it early on. The LNG industry had been in existence for decades when I started to look at it, but it was very much a bespoke niche industry. 
So the first thing I looked for when I started to learn about LNG was a book on LNG. And there were, I think, maybe two books out there that were a little bit outdated. And so that drove me then to write a book on LNG because I couldn't find the materials I wanted on the industry. Being, if not on the ground floor, at least in uh, much sooner than most others, you've seen how quickly the industry has developed. And of course, U.S. exports of LNG uh, now a contributor to U.S. GDP and is part of any serious discussion about energy policy. For those of our listeners, and even for myself, who may not have been following the story as closely as you, during the Obama administration and the Trump administration, there were certain rules that were passed that allowed the export of LNG. Could you just give us a brief summary of what's taken place from a federal government White House point of view over the last 10 years and how it has affected the industry? It's sort of, you know, I'll, I'll try to do, I guess, 10 plus years of history because I think it actually, we need to go back a little bit further than 10 years only because at one time, and, and a lot of people may not realize this, the U.S. was going to be one of the world's largest LNG importers. So this was prior to our shale gas revolution. And in the early 2000s, a lot of political and, and um, advisors and White House folks and policy leaders, such as Alan Greenspan, is one of the most notable ones, uh, had traveled the country and really touted the fact that the U.S. needed to build LNG import terminals because we were looking like we were going to be short of natural gas. Natural gas prices were rising, so we had to do something. So the solution back then was let's build LNG import terminals. And that's really important to your question about the exports because a number of LNG import terminals did get built in anticipation of importing LNG. In fact, the U.S. was going to be one of the world's largest LNG importers. And, and our chief partner, we would be importing chiefly from which countries? Was it expected at that time? Well, Qatar was going to be one of the countries we would be importing from, in, in part because they were a very large exporter. So Qatar had planned to set a lot of uh, natural gas to the U.S., so when I started to get interested in, in LNG and I was working on my book, this was about 2009, 2010. Actually, prior to that, probably 2008, 2009, when you went to LNG events, people were scratching their heads saying, well, we just built billions of dollars of LNG import terminals. And are, is anybody going to use them? Because by that time, shale gas had started to take hold. And so sure enough, by 2010, the first company that had built an LNG import terminal was Chenier Energy. So by 2010, Chenier was the first to realize they weren't really going to use their import terminal, and they were really threatened with going under. And so they had to do something. And so what they decided to do then was, we'll add liquefaction onto the import terminal and become an export terminal. And that was pretty revolutionary. And in fact, I'll never forget. So I can tell you to the day when I heard that announcement, it was in March of 2010, and it was at an LNG event in Brazil, and a representative from Chenier stood up at this LNG event and said, Chenier is planning to be the world's first bi-directional terminal. And I turned next to, a, next to me was a, a Wood McKenzie analyst. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book about LNG. I don't really, you know, I'm still learning. What's a bi-directional terminal? And he said, I have no idea. And by the, by the way, just, uh, just information, where was this novel 
bi-directional terminal going to be constructed? Part of the term, so the import terminal had already been constructed on the Gulf Coast of Louisiana. So Chenier already had their import terminal sitting there that they had invested, I forget what the number was, maybe $6 billion. So their terminal was sitting there idle. So what they essentially said is, we're going to create a bi-directional terminal so we can also export LNG. And so nobody knew what that meant, had never been done. And quite frankly, people laughed, like really experienced people. Because again, I was still in the learning mode of, okay, that sounds good, makes sense. But now, now with Susan, were, were they laughing at the idea that the U.S. would have surplus LNG to export? Or were they laughing at the idea that there could be an active market in the transportation of LNG? Was it the technological issue or the question whether the U.S. actually had the resources to send LNG abroad? Well, I think it was all of that. I think it was just one of those things that sound crazy, right? And so people go, oh, that'll never happen. We don't have the gas. How are you going to do that? Where's the market? Where are you going to export this to? So I think people, it was just a seemingly crazy idea that had never been done. So people didn't take it very seriously. Let me ask you this. How big a technological challenge was creating LNG? Was it akin to developing shale? Or was it, you know, an old science people had known and, and it, at any point in the last 60 years, LNG could have been could have been produced? Or was there some scientific breakthrough in the 1980s or 1990s that made it possible? No. So the technology behind LNG had existed for decades, going back to the 40s, even, even, even earlier than that, actually, but just not very well known. And it's expensive technology. Right. So you're, you're essentially cooling gas, refrigerating natural gas until it forms a liquid. It's quite expensive to do that. So the only reason you would do that, and I always use Qatar as an example, is because if you have a huge natural gas resource, and usually it's offshore, you're trying to monetize that natural gas. And more often than not, you're trying to get the gas out of the way of oil and other liquids. Right. So Qatar is unique in that it has a huge non-associated natural gas field. And other parts of the world, for example, I'm doing some work in Guyana. Guyana has huge oil discoveries and with oil comes natural gas. So natural gas historically has always been sort of a, a byproduct of oil that you have to do something with it. So you have to either monetize it and get it to market or, and we've seen in the U.S. with our shale gas in the Bakken and the Eagleford in, in Texas, we flared natural gas simply because we have to do, get it out of the way of the production of oil. So the LNG technology developed over decades really to monetize offshore natural gas. And like I said, it was a very much a niche industry. So when the U.S. proposed exports, there weren't a whole lot of technological breakthroughs that had to happen the liquefaction technology already existed. It was a matter of adding liquefaction technology onto the import terminal, which uses regas technology. And so for folks that don't know, when you're importing natural gas, the, natu the LNG is coming in in a chilled state. And in that chilled state, it then forms a liquid. And when it's an import terminal, you're regasifying that LNG, turning it back into natural gas that can go flow through pipelines. And my understanding is that when it's liquefied, it also is condensed to an enormous degree. 
I don't remember what the ratio is, maybe 500, 600 to one in terms in terms of how much natural gas in a gas form. And therefore, what you have coming in on a container is an extraordinary amount of natural gas once it's uh, regasified. Is that correct? Exactly. And the reason for that is, you know, economics, right? It's not economical to ship a small quantity of natural gas. So when you liquefy it, you condense it from 600 to 1. That's the ratio. You're correct with that. So think like beach ball to ping pong ball, roughly. And so then you're able to transport huge volumes of natural gas, which is one of the only ways it could be economical to transport natural gas, because most natural gas travels through pipeline. So LNG really is a way to move gas around the world in a ship similar to oil. And how, uh, how sensitive is it, therefore, is the economics of it to the economics of shipping? I mean, currently, with this recover- worldwide recovery from COVID, faster in some places, obviously, than others, worldwide shipping rates have skyrocketed, as have many commodity prices, including the price of LNG. Are higher shipping rates at this moment having any kind of dampening effect on exports or, or imports of LNG? Or is the demand for LNG so high that that's just obviously literally cost of production and distribution and so what? Well, I think shipping rates do factor into the equation, but it tends to be more than where is it economical to send the gas? Where's the market for the gas? And the market will, you know, the LNG will flow to the highest paying market, including shipping costs. And the market tends to shift depending on weather and seasonality. And so the, so I, I would say shipping does matter, but it hasn't really hindered the LNG industry, the shipping rates. How active is Russia in LNG at the moment? I mean, obviously, uh, Russia's uh, gas pipeline into Europe is a big issue and has been a big issue. And so as an alternative to a pipeline, that's why I'm kind of wondering what their LNG presence is in terms of distributing by ship rather than controversial pipeline. So Russia has been uh, very active in LNG in the past decade. And one of their big exporters is Novatech. And they have three and a fourth LNG project proposed and they've done really, really well. Their projects have done very, very well. But Russia's generally shipping that LNG to other parts of the world because pipeline gas is still more economical than, than LNG. So if you can pipe the gas to a place, that's generally still your best option. And so Russia is, is shipping its LNG uh, very, a lot to Asia because Asia is quite close and really all over the world. So again, one of the benefits of LNG, it allows the natural gas product to move around the world. Whereas historically, most natural gas has been transported by pipeline, which meant you had to have pipeline connections, right? And so if you're the US or Europe or even Asia, which doesn't have a lot of pipelines, natural gas tended to stay within the region. So LNG is now what I say is LNG has really become the glue linking global gas markets, allowing natural gas to travel anywhere in the world. It makes sense from a supply, demand and price standpoint. My original question was about federal policy, because I believe it was under President Obama that rules were lifted that actually restricted the export. Well, first of all, why did we have rules and when were rules put in place that prevented the export. Does that go back to you know the 1970s and Jimmy Carter trying to uh, prevent any energy from leaving the U.S.? 
No. So actually in terms of, now oil was a little bit different, but I'll, I'll talk about LNG. So in terms of LNG exports, what happened in the U.S. is when Chenier proposed to export LNG in 2010, uh, the first thing lawyers and consultants do, and, and I'm a lawyer by trade, so the first thing lawyers do is you have to go look up the rules. Can you even export LNG? And when you looked up the rules, uh, the rules dated back to the 80s, and the rules essentially provided for the import or export. And the sort of stumbling block were, was that all of the rules that were written, again, remember I mentioned Alan Greenspan saying we have to import LNG. So really all of the rules came into being when the U.S. was expected to be a major importer. But the rules read, you know, the import or export of LNG is essentially governed by the Department of Energy and FERC, Right. So the Department of Energy governs whether or not you can import or export a commodity. So what became the stumbling block a little bit in the U.S., and maybe this is what you're getting to, is we had a lot of discussion about whether or not the U.S. should allow exports because imports are quite different. If you're a country running short of gas, it should be as easy as possible to import that commodity, in my view, right? If you're going to be short that commodity, you should make it as easy as possible for someone to import it. But then what came up was, well, what are, aren't exports a little bit different? Because do we want to let companies export unlimited amounts of natural gas? Is that going to leave us short in the future? So the Department of Energy looked at the rules. And with Chenier, they said, well, the rules say the importer export. And there was a public interest determination that was a little bit undefined. And so the Department of Energy immediately approved Chenier's application to export. But then a whole lot of um, sort of dissension arose, and a lot of it arose due to fracking, right? So Obama had to face sort of the anti-fracking coalition who said, if you allow LNG exports, you're essentially going to lock us into fracking, which the environmentalists didn't think we should do. And so the Obama administration had to balance all of that. And lo and behold, essentially what really the Obama administration did was really they made a policy decision to allow unlimited exports. At the same time, they closed down the XL pipeline from Canada, or at least tried to prevent that. So that may have been their calculus as they tried to buy off environmentalists on one side and try to sneak LNG exports on the other. I know that sounds very uh, pejorative, but perhaps uh, they had to make that kind of calculus. Well, I think they did. And, you know, sort of disclosure, I was one of the few people that said the Department of Energy needed to have some procedure to monitor the volume of exports, because I was one of the people concerned about the price impacts of domestic gas and also sort of the future. Are we going to run short of natural gas in the future? And that was not the mainstream view. And and I talked to a lot of folks, and um, I'll get, share one quote from a, you, a uh, California congressional representative who had been at a major nonprofit organization as a, an attorney. And so I said to him, well, you know, now that you're in Congress, what do you think of fracking? What's your position on fracking? And he said, well, I'll hold my nose about fracking if it gets us off a of coal. And I still remember that to this day, because I think that pretty much sums up what the policy became, both within the Obama administration, but also amongst environmentalists. As bad as maybe they thought fracking was, if it displaced coal, that was a good thing. 
And we'll come back to more regulations on the natural gas industry later. So I think there was a bit of a trade-off. We're environmentalists in a way, in part because the Obama administration in 2012, now remember in 2012, Obama needed to win Pennsylvania to win the general election. Pennsylvania was a major shale gas fracking producing state. So he had to win Pennsylvania. So he had to backpedal a bit on the anti-shale gas rhetoric in order to win Pennsylvania. And so in 2010 or 2012, you definitely saw a policy shift backing away from the anti-fracking rhetoric. And I think that was the, you mentioned the keystone. I think there was a bit of a trade-off. Back away from fracking and anti-shale gas and, you know, I'll give you Keystone because that was a big environmentalist win. So you can't win all the battles, <laughs> right? You can't win all the battles. So you pick. Yeah. And what do you know? Politics came into it and local politics and which state you needed for the electoral map somehow invaded into the policy calculus. Well, that's, you know, true of every administration. Now, you had mentioned the, the environmentalists and their view of LNG. And uh, of course, in some cases, LNG is characterized as a kind of bridge fuel to the era of renewables. Others point out that natural gas is actually quite clean and a good way to battle environmental despoilment of, of the planet. So where do you come out on this? And, and where should people come out on the question of whether LNG is sort of a, a temporary bridge until the price of solar and wind comes down even lower, or whether in fact we should embrace it real and um, recognize that some fossil fuels are actually relatively clean? Well, so it's interesting, this question, and, and in my book, the first chapter, I talk about the three views, the th you know, what's the role of natural gas? And lo and behold, you know, a decade later, we're still having that discussion, although some of the terminology has changed. A decade ago, the energy industry was very adamant that natural gas was not a bridge fuel, right? Natural gas is, a, and so there's buzzwords, and the industry was using the term foundation fuel. It's a foundation fuel, and we can anchor our future energy needs on natural gas because it's cleaner, burning, abundant, et cetera. And of course, environmentalists were saying, no, it's just another dirty, dirty fossil fuel. And then the middle ground approach is, as you said, was the bridge fuel. It's a bridge fuel to something better. So a decade ago, the industry was very concerned about the language of bridge fuel because bridge implies a short-term use. So then you start, well, how long is that bridge? Right? If the bridge is only five years, you're never going to get the investment in natural gas infrastructure because that infrastructure is going to be on the ground for 40 plus years. So fast forward to today. <laughs> so now we have a lot of natural gas infrastructure on the ground. And so I'm sensing a, the industry now actually adopting some of the bridge fuel language in part because we already have the infrastructure built. So once you build infrastructure, you're sort of locked into that. So what's my view? Um, so first and foremost, I'm a consumer of energy. So as a consumer, what do I want? I want affordable, reliable energy. And I don't really care, to be honest, as a consumer, what, what that energy is, as long as it's affordable and reliable. So in that regard, I think natural gas is, is a really good alternative. It has been relatively affordable and reliable. Now, I'm in California. I'm not sure where you are, but I'm in California where natural gas is coming under fire. No pun intended. 
you know, in Berkeley, they're eliminating natural gas from new construction. Natural gas is very expensive. Uh, when I use my natural gas fireplace in California, it's very expensive. You know, so that's how, so my view is always as a consumer too. So I, I think natural gas has a really good role to play in that regard. It's abundant. It's relatively affordable. The infrastructure is there. We should use it. There are some, some people make the point that LNG is also a fuel with a kind of demand response so that plants and utilities can access more of it if necessary, if renewable fuels are in shorter supply or, or simply not producing because it's too cloudy or, uh, or there's not enough wind. Does that make sense that it, it plays that role in terms of um, a surplus to be tapped when necessary? Well, it's a it's a good baseload fuel. Same with coal, right? I mean, that's the the purpose of coal too. And when I first started getting interested in uh, in natural gas, some of the first people that reached out to me were renewable people, solar people, and they love natural gas. They thought it was a great complement to their solar projects. So I think that's true. I think it is a a great complement to wind and solar. And in Texas, there's a lot of natural gas and also a lot of of wind. Well, I wanted to ask. I'm glad you brought up Texas. Because obviously Texas uh, has been in the news uh, over the last year because of energy problems with the grid. And I'm wondering, uh, given the Texas freeze, and and I'm sure there'll be Texas scorching over the course of the summer and resulting power outages that then have called on natural gas to fill the gap. And then at times in the winter, the natural gas plants could not double or triple their capacity as perhaps they were asked to do. How are you looking at energy reliability? I think you you actually teach a course in Texas, I presume at the uh, Houston, University of Houston Law School. Uh, so your classes, I think your Zoom classes purportedly were temporarily interrupted because of energy issues. Can you give us uh, some of your thoughts on that and the grid and the reliability of these various fuels? I do teach in Texas at the University of Houston Law Center. So it's a law course focused on shale gas and LNG. And we don't just talk about the law. We talk a lot about regulations. We talk a lot about policy. Uh, my students are from all over the world. So I talk about the U.S. in terms of how we do things in the U.S., but, you know, what can other countries learn from the U.S. or, you know, to do or not to do. So the Texas energy crisis, I, I was teaching on Zoom this year because um, in-person classes were canceled. So normally I'm in Houston and I own a condo in Houston as well. So I'm also an energy consumer in, in Texas. And um, what was interesting to me about the, the big freeze in Texas is that I had always sort of held Texas out as better than California, right? Because I, I get so disgruntled with California with how expensive everything is and we have power outages and nothing works and the infrastructure doesn't look good. And so I sort of would hold Texas out as a model and then we had the big freeze. And I thought, well, okay, maybe Texas isn't such a great model. So, you know, what happened in Texas? And I'm not a power expert. There are people that are specifically digging into exactly what happened. But, you know, one of the things happened was a very unusual freeze that froze some of the natural gas infrastructure. And so you heard a lot of discussion about it should have been weatherized, right? It should have been able to withstand this big freeze. Well, you know, I, I don't know what the cost of that would have been, but I'm guessing it was probably cost prohibitive, right? Do you weatherize your natural gas infrastructure for a 500-year 
winter storm? It's sort of like the hurricanes in Texas, right? Do you, you know, have flood control and, and build some hurricane resistance infrastructure for a, you know, every 500 year storm? Well, do you prepare for the 500-year freeze when everybody tells you the biggest threat is global warming and the continuing rise in Fahrenheit Celsius? Right, or hurricanes, right? In Texas, it's always been hurt. And floods, you know, Houston has horrible floods every year. But I guess my takeaway from what happened in Texas and also what happens in California is I think regulators can bog themselves down overthinking things. And so I would like to see reliability and cost be the two main determinants, which historically they have been in the U.S., right? We've been a fossil fuel country, and historically cost and reliability were two of the big components. But now when you add on carbon neutrality and net zero targets and you know California 100% renewables by 2040, it adds levels of complication onto the grid that... I don't know that the grids will be able to handle. So, and, and again, I'm, I'm talking from a consumer. If in 10 years I'm faced with rolling blackouts on a frequent basis in California, and you tell me, oh, well, we're now 100% renewable, but now you don't have power 24 hours a day, I'm not going to be very happy, right? And so I, I hope regulators start to focus more on reliability and cost. Not that they should focus less on greening the grid, but somehow you're going to have to mesh it so that people still get reliable, affordable power. And that's the part that worries me the most. I, I feel, feel like we're heading, no matter where you are in the country, the world, we're heading to a world of less reliable and more expensive power, which I think is really going to hurt consumers going forward. And such an irony, considering in the last 20 years, there's been a excuse the pun, explosion, you know, a firing up of so many new ideas and access to gas fields and oil fields that were unimaginable or deemed, you know, too too deep or too far. Horizontal drilling and fracking are revolutions that have created the potential for so much more energy. And I wanted to ask you uh, about those two methodologies. For instance, horizontal drilling and fracking. You you had said that environmentalists had a negative view of, of fracking and the Obama administration had to balance that. I'm hearing fewer comments about fracking as negative. I'm reading fewer stories about mini earthquakes shaking the ground in Oklahoma and elsewhere. Is that because a the US is actually producing somewhat less because the price because of COVID, there was less demand on energy and energy prices were down until very recently. The oil rig count is maybe half of what it was at its peak in 2014. Is it, are there fewer stories simply because there's actually less going on? Or is it possible that there have been improvements uh, in the technology such that the environmental repercussions have dampened somewhat? Or am I just not reading the right websites and newspapers? I think it's a combination of all of those factors. I think all of the noise from the anti-fracking coalitions and the environmental groups was very helpful in pushing the industry and pushing regulators to strengthen regulations, push the industry to do a better job. So I think the industry is doing a better job. So you're hearing less incidents. 
I also think we're now 10 plus years into this. And so the focus has shifted. I think to a certain extent, you know, after 2012, I think environmentalists decided they weren't really going to win the anti-fracking battle. And so they shifted their focus to other battles they could win. So Keystone. And, you know, although I I will say this, they did win a big battle in uh, the Texas Brownsville area, which is trying to build three LNG export terminals. And Sierra Club has been very active there. And that community does not really want LNG exports. So the Sierra Club has been very active there in pushing back against those facilities. So I think, you know, it's just a, a combination of things. The environmental groups have focused on where they can make the most impact, realizing that shale gas is here. You're not going to shut it down, but you do see a shift towards more regulations. So that tends to be sort of how it works out. Okay, we'll allow the activity now. And then over time, we're going to keep layering on regulations to make it more environmentally sustainable and we'll just regulate it better. So I think we're in that phase. We're, we're seeing more regulations coming on the industry now in terms of emissions. Are you seeing regulations that seem sensible to you or they seem symbolic or they seem onerous such that we'll all end up with wood-burning stoves to avoid federal regulation? <laughs> well, maybe a combination of all of that, right? I think anytime you layer on regulations, you tend to drive up the cost. So again, if you can tell, my big worry in the future is reliability and cost. We will be able to get natural gas in California. If you already have a natural gas home, you will get natural gas, but it's going to be cost prohibitive. And that's a function of, in part, regulations, a large part, regulations. So I think that's the world we're, we're headed to, which is a bit troubling. Yes, it is troubling. And it'll be done under the banner of listen to the science uh, without actually looking at the science of natural g- gas and the relative cleanliness of natural gas and LNG. Well, I, I don't want to editorialize too much, but I, I wanted to move on. You've You've used a term that I think is quite interesting and have suggested that nations that want to capitalize on LNG should create a gas master plan before beginning production. Tell us what you mean by a gas master plan. You know, what does it entail and and why is it important? I said this recently in the context of Guyana, which, as I mentioned, has huge oil fines that they're really trying to monetize the oil. And yet there's a lot of associated gas that they need to do something with. So the gas master plan tends to be a roadmap of how are you going to develop your gas resources with a range of options. And there are consultants that do this type of work. It's not the type of work I I do, although I read gas master plans. I don't actually consult about them. But it tends to be a roadmap on how to best develop those resources. So, for example, in the gas master plan, you'll look at the size of the resource Is the size of the resource big enough so that maybe an LNG export project is feasible? If not, then do you build a a pipeline to shore? So in Guyana, they're looking at building a pipeline from the offshore oil field to shore. All right. So then you build the pipeline. What are you going to use the natural gas for? And one thing that when you look around the world, so the United States is sort of uh, unique, right? So a lot of countries that have natural gas have really no industry or have very small populations. So Guyana, the population of Guyana, I think, is 700,000. They don't have a whole lot of industry. 
So in some places around the world, they may have a lot of natural gas, but they don't really need the natural gas. So all of Guyana might need one natural gas-fired power plant, right? <laughs> okay, so they have way more gas than that. So a gas master plan can help figure out what to do with that gas and how to best monetize that gas, how to use the gas domestically, how to export the gas, either pipeline or LNG export. So it's really a, a roadmap that can be a helpful tool. Well, and of course, this sort of phenomenon is true even in economically advanced countries. Israel, for instance, has discovered natural gas and has been uh, extracting and processing natural gas. And I think Israel is in discussions with Egypt, where Egypt would accept the natural gas from Israel and then turn it into LNG for exports. It, it is remaking the world map and pretty fundamental ways. And I think Turkey is also accessing natural gas in newfound fields in the Mediterranean. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned Israel is an interesting example because for years they've been talking also about LNG exports. And so we might see LNG exports because they have huge natural gas finds, but it turns out it might be more economical just to pipe the gas to Egypt since Egypt already has LNG export facilities. And Egypt then has been short of natural gas. So they had export facilities they needed to feed, but actually ran short of natural gas. So you see natural gas starting to move around the world in, in interesting ways, with exporters becoming importers and importing become, importers becoming exporters. So it's, in, it's been interesting. Susan, this, this is a fascinating discussion, and I think we've set the record for smarter forecasts because we've been speaking for oh, 40 minutes or so, and I don't know whether the word China has come up. And I don't think I've been in any discussion about the world economy and energy that has not talked about China within the first 40 minutes. So how do you forecast LNG affecting U.S. relations with China? Uh, it seems like China is importing more. What's going on on that, on that front since so much of our discussion about Chinese-U.S. policy these days has been about tension and acrimony? For decades, Japan has been the world's largest LNG importer. Well, now the world's largest LNG importer uh, expected in 2021 is China. So going forward, China is going to be the world's largest LNG importer. So, so what does that mean for the U.S.? Prior to the I'd say going back to the Trump era trade war with China, <laughs> right? It was hoped that a lot of the Chinese buyers would step up and take an interest and offtake agreement with U.S. LNG exporters. So Chenier was one of the companies that it hoped would have a Chinese buyer. And then when the trade war broke out, that all sort of um, fell by the wayside. And you didn't hear anything about China buying any U.S. LNG but lo and behold, U.S. LNG is making its way to China, right? If not as a direct buyer, but other buyers of U.S. LNG can send LNG to China. And Chenier, I believe, is also sending LNG to China just through their marketing group. So China is going to be a big buyer of U.S. LNG one way or the other, and also a major buyer of, of LNG. So they have a, a very important role to buy. They're also a big natural gas buyer. They have a huge, the power of Siberia pipeline with Russia. So China comes into play in many aspects in terms of being a buyer, but also geopolitics, right? So they, they do do a lot of deals with Russia as well for natural gas. So that's one thing to, to factor in as well. And 
are there natural gas fines and fields not too far from China, but not technically in Chinese waters that China may have ambitions to take over? Maybe. <laughs> right. I mean, another way to put it, are, are there some nervous Vietnamese and Thai and Filipino uh, gas executives? Well, I, you know, I, I'm assuming you're talking about the South China Sea. And yes, there are resources in the South China Sea. So yeah, I think that's another issue that's coming that that'll and I'm not, you know, I'm not a political policy advisor. So I see how it impacts LNG and it, there's definitely an impact, but it's not something I spend my days worrying about, although there are plenty of people that do. But energy no doubt comes into geopolitics in a, in a very 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 big way. I don't know how closely you're following the current markets in in natural gas. We're we're in a situation where as I said at the outset of of the show, inventories are low, gas prices are very high. There's a global rally. China, as you say, is importing more and more LNG. It seems as if the response to higher prices has been rather tepid as of late, as if U.S. natural gas and oil producers as well don't really trust that this rally in gas and oil has staying power. Uh, you're not, it doesn't seem as if uh, rigs and pumping stations are coming, were idle are coming back online at the kind of furious pace they may have come back online four or five years ago. Do you have any insight into this and the, the response to the higher prices that we're currently seeing throughout the world? So last summer, U.S. LNG exports were essentially shut in, meaning buyers chose not to take the LNG because it was cheaper not to take it than to pay for the LNG and then try to find a home for it. So this summer, we're not seeing that. And so I would say then that, that's a good sign, right? The demand has come back. And so it's now economical to pay for the LNG and you can find a market for it that'll pay you a price where it's worth shipping that LNG to that market. So I think that's been a positive development. You have seen gas and oil production ramp up. And so you've seen feed gas to LNG export facilities ramp up to now almost 12 BCF a day, which is almost a maximum. So you have seen a demand response. So in the context of U.S. LNG, most of the facilities are sort of already been built out or in the process of being built. And we haven't seen another wave take hold yet which is, I think, what you're getting at is, okay, we're seeing higher prices. Normally, you would then start to see people sanctioning new projects. We haven't really seen that yet. In the U.S., there are two projects, sort of big ones that I'll mention, Tellurian and Next Decade. Both of those are hoping to get buyers. Tellurian just signed two deals, two recent deals. And if they sign a couple more deals, they'll probably sanction the first phase of that project. Next Decade recently added carbon capture to their project, um, which is an interesting development. So we'll see where they go with that. And around the world, so I mentioned Guyana because it is a big find. And I am seeing activity in Guyana. I'm seeing activity in Vietnam. Vietnam is looking at imports, also developing some of their own resources. Uh, but I think, as you said, it, it seems to me we're still in this uncertain sort of period where 
Is demand going to be real or are we going to have another wave of COVID shutdowns, right, which really crush demand? The financial markets are looking odd. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets. Please join me next Saturday morning for the final episode of an emerging energy framework for the 22nd century. I will be sitting down with a guest who the New York Times referred to as America's most influential energy pundit, Daniel Jurgen. Dr. Jurgen is the vice chair of IHS Market, one of the world's largest research and information companies, and author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power. On behalf of ABEX, I'm Todd Buchholz. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. 